All right, so my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, if I haven't said that already. My name's Ryan. And today we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 7 in the current sermon series. We're in the Gospel of Mark. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Turn over to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have some place at the ends of your rows, and you can just nudge your neighbor and ask them to pass that down to you. Um, if you don't know where the book of Mark is, you can um, just thumb through it, or you can check the table of contents. There's, there's no shame in that. Or in those Bibles on the floor, I believe it's on page 547. Uh, so you can just go to 547. That's where we're going to be today. Um, I actually wanted to start our time together with a brief uh, reflection on marriage, particularly what happens when marriages sometimes uh, can get into rocky places. Um, Couples, when marriages get into rocky places, sometimes they'll pull in a marriage counselor into the mix. They'll pull a marriage counselor into the mix to to try to help them figure out what's going on in their marriage and what they can do to fix it. And and so it's this marriage counselor's task to... um, to help them get together and talk during their sessions about what might be going on underneath the scenes that's kind of uh, limiting the life that they can experience in their marriage. Um, But then what they also do is oftentimes they will um, task a couple with doing certain practices throughout the week uh, that can help them engage uh, with one another and can help them um, hopefully experience life again. It can help them hopefully create the space where they can be honest with one another once more and they can start to experience the life of of a relationship together. Um, And and so they they kind of engage these practices and methodologies that can range from like conversation exercises to um, date nights to scheduling times for other certain activities. Um, All all these things that that they can be doing. Um, but, But here's what happens. Sometimes this doesn't work. Sometimes this doesn't work and and people and couples will end up uh, separating and getting divorced. And this, can, and this can be despite the fact that the couple has taken the methodologies and the prescriptions that their counselor um, gave them, and they can be even engaging them faithfully, they can be engaging them honestly, but for whatever reason or another, their heart never got to come back into the relationship, and so they end up not being able to work it out. Um, the, the relationship of Christians with God can be similar in, in this way. Um, similar, I use the word similar. It's not a one-for-one correlation here. Um, but it, there can be a similar dynamic between us and God because um, the, the Christian fundamentally understands um, our relation to God. At, at, that at one point, there's a huge rift that, that, that God, had, as the creator of everything, had prescribed a vision for life of, of how created order was meant to work how it was meant to work, and as created beings, we're dependent upon him for that vision. Um, but we've bungled it, and, and, and that's what we call sin. We've kind of missed the mark of, of what that vision faithfully lived out looks like, and so that causes a, a, a huge gap between humanity and God. And, and those of us who would call ourselves Christians would say, Jesus came to bridge that gap, and we look to him in faith, and he's bridging that gap for us, and, and we can again find the life of God through Christ. But here's the thing, sometimes even Christians, we can move away from, and subtly we can drift away from finding that life. We can subtly drift away from a relationship with God, much like the, like, like the couple that's in marriage counseling, um, that's engaging practices, we can engage practices without bringing our heart into it. And when that happens, we're actually cut off from the life of relationship that God sends to his people. 
And so we, start, we stop to experience life. And, and there's primarily two attitudes um, that we can subtly drift into as Christians. Subtly, it's two subtle attitudes that we can drift into. We don't even realize they're happening, but when we look back, we'll be like, oh, I adopted this attitude. And luckily for us, both of them come up in Mark chapter seven today. Both of them come up in Mark chapter seven. And so we're gonna unpack those together. And the first one comes up, um, right in the beginning of Mark chapter seven, Jesus gets in an argument with the Pharisees and the scribes. He's always doing this, it seems. These were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus is getting in an argument with these guys, and the first attitude is really unearthed. Um, and then Jesus, from that, he'll, t- he'll turn to the crowds and his disciples, and he'll use that disagreement to t- as a teaching point for them. And then there we see the other attitude that becomes unearthed. All right, so, so that's a flow that we're gonna take today. We're gonna look at both of these conversations and, and how they flow um, and, and how they identify and unearth these attitudes that we can have uh, and subtly drift into. Um, if you're not a Christian today, we, we, we always um, preach and, and gather together as if there's people who are just considering Jesus and what this looks like. We always do that. Um, if, if you're not here and you're not a Christian today, this is a great weekend, uh, a great Sunday for you to be here because um, we're gonna be talking about what it actually means to have a relationship with God. What does that actually look like? Because that can be a very strange notion to have a relationship with someone you can't even see. Um, And so we're actually talking about that today. And so it's a perfect week for you to be here too. And um, I hope it gives you more, I hope you leave with more questions than you came with. Because that's what we we do here at Sedaris. We're considering community. And and so we hope that we can be asking more and more questions about what it means to follow Jesus, okay? All right, so. Let's jump right into it to see if we can get at these heart attitudes, and, and they'll probably be uh, fairly apparent to you as we read through it, okay? Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now when, <clears throat> now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, um, Mark makes sure to point out that these scribes are from Jerusalem, these scribes are from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center of the, the Jewish culture at this point, and, that, and that's because the temple was there. And these scribes were the religious teachers from the central temple. And so if, if you want to kind of have a, a, a comparison, these are like the big archbishops from the Vatican for the Catholic Church, okay, that have come out into the countryside to hear Jesus teach and check out what he's all about. So this is actually a big conversation. This is a big conversation that's about to happen. The scribes are from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots, and copper vessels, which I guess are different than pots, um, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes, um, sorry, and, and the Pharisees and scribes asked him, and this is the question that I'm gonna unpack for us here. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? What is this tradition of the elders? Um, about 200 to 300 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, um, some, some religious leaders in Israel had taken the Old Testament, uh, particularly the Torah, and they, uh, 
they encountered a problem much like you and I encounter, and that, and that went like this. Um, this text was written to Israel 1,000 years ago. How are we supposed to interpret it for ourselves? How are we supposed to interpret it for ourselves? You know, we, we, we do that. We look at the Bible and say, okay, parts of this are 3,500 3, years old, parts are 2,000 years old. How do we interpret this for ourselves? And what they ended up doing was they ended up taking the Old Testament law and working it out into every detail of life, into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of minute ways that they could do things that ranged from how to cook, how to farm, how to be a shepherd, how to conduct yourself in the marketplace, what to wear, how to cut your hair, all these things, hundreds and hundreds of things. This happened a couple hundred years before Jesus came up on the scene. And it's called the tradition of the elders. You may have heard to it previously referred to as the oral tradition of Israel, something that created after something that was created after the Old Testament was written, but before Jesus. That's a tradition of the elders. And, and these scribes and Pharisees are asking, why do your disciples not walk according to this tradition? Not just why aren't they washing their hands before dinner, like your mother would get upset with you if you're a kid but why are they not walking according to this entire tradition? Why is their life not set on the goal of following this tradition? Why not? Why not? Because in fact, it doesn't say anything about washing your hands in the Old Testament for the, the normal everyday person. They had taken a law that was um, in the book of Exodus where God had said, hey, when priests serve before me in the temple, they should wash their hands first to kind of signify that we're, we're preparing ourselves to encounter God. And they said, let's just be safe and all do it. Let's just all do that all the time, okay? And so that's actually what's going on here. And, and, and that's the charge that they're leveling against Jesus and his disciples. And this is Jesus' response. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, or the tradition of the elders, or the oral tradition. The commandments of men are have been elevated to the point of doctrine, or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And this is this is a, a very um, this is kind of a, this is a harsh critique. Jesus is using Isaiah 29. This is a quote from Isaiah 29, and from it, Jesus kind of gives us a definition of what a hypocrite is. And um, this is actually new. We, we've used the word hypocrite. It comes from Jesus's use in our culture. Um, we've used this term for a long time, but Jesus is actually one of the first people to coin this in a negative way. It's, he's actually borrowing a term from the Greek theater. In the Greek theater, um, there are actors, and they would often hold masks when they acted, and people, people would say, oh, that's a hypocrite. They're, that person has a mask on. That's just an actor with a mask on. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying that in, in the Pharisees and the scribes um, way that they were holding to these traditions of the men, uh, of men, the oral tradition, they were actually putting a mask on because they weren't bringing their heart into it as well. They were just pretending. They weren't doing it genuinely. They were just pretending. That's what Jesus is saying is happening here. <clears throat> And, and what is interesting here is, is Jesus is getting at this in this quotation from Isaiah, and he's saying, you guys actually don't understand what the law of God is all about. Because the law of God was never something that was supposed to be accomplished. They had deduced it down to hundreds and hundreds of things that if they just did all those things, then they could accomplish the, the law of God. 
But in fact, this notion means that they misunderstood the law. Because in fact, um, this is what the law was actually for. Um, in Romans chapter three, this is what Paul says the, the law was for. He was a Pharisee himself once. He says, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged them that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, that is, no one can achieve the law. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he kind of follows this up with a, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be, may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so the, the law, the purpose of the law in, in Judaism wasn't to create a set of things that we could do to make God happy. It was meant to identify that no one could actually be good enough and held accountable to the high standard that God has for that vision on how to live life. And, and the Pharisees' notion towards this is, is very, very uh, indicative that, that, that they've misunderstood that this is actually the vision of the law, okay? This notion that they could codify the law is indicative that they missed it. And before we just point at the Pharisees and say, hey, these guys, these guys missed it, these guys missed the boat. Like they had the law that was just supposed to know that they're supposed to depend on God. I want us, before we throw cast stones on them, to entertain the thought that we do this too. Because if you think about it, codification of our relationships, I guess we could call it, codifying them or creating things that we should and shouldn't do in relationships so we know that we're acting faithfully within them is something that we do often as human beings, just even with each other. I, I mean, even think about your closest um, relationships that you have. Have I recently called my parents? Have I recently texted my friends? Have I recently had a date night with my significant other? Have I read the Bible to my kid enough? Have I prayed with them enough? We, we have all these codes that we actually have built into our subconscious that we're using to let us know if we're doing a good job or not. This is a natural human thing that we do with all of our relationships. And we do this because it takes the messiness that is a relationship and it makes it neat. It takes the qualitative nature that is me relating with Dave, say uh, the lead pastor here with Dave, takes that qualitative nature and it makes it very quantitative. It makes it very measurable. All of a sudden I know if I'm doing good in my relationship with him because I, I've done this, this, and this, so we're good, you know? It takes that which is um, very uncertain and brings a lot of certainty to whether we're doing a good job or not. You could say it takes something without a clear win and makes it achievable, you know? And so this is what we do in all of our relationships. And we honestly, we, it's so natural for us to do it with people who are standing right in front of us that we also do it with God, and we can slip into the attitude with God, because he's actually not right there, and it's pretty hard to get feedback sometimes to see if we're, to know if we're doing a good job in that relationship. We do it with God, too. Some of us may be prone to saying, oh, only certain people do this with God, but no, we actually all just have different set of codes that we have to let us know that we're good with God. Um, I'll provide, uh, here, here's an illustration. 
um, kind of a personal one. Uh, I was in college, and I had a long relationship with a girl in college, um, and it was great. And I had, <laughs> it's great. Um, and I had really convinced myself that in order to honor um, God in this relationship in college, that we were just not to perform certain physical actions with each other. And if we didn't do that, then we'd be good, and I'd be honoring God with that relationship. After I got out of that relationship, God really showed me how my heart, my heart's disposition towards that, that woman was one of lust, enraged lust a lot. But I never took my heart to him because I had convinced myself I was fulfilling this code of not to perform certain things. Okay, and this is what we all do. It, all of us can slip into this attitude with God himself. It's not only done by religious people, it's done by all of us who want to have a relationship with someone we can't see right in front of us. It's, it's a very natural thing to do. And I, and I don't want to just, I don't want to just point at this attitude and say, oh, we're just so twisted and evil and misaligned and we just need to try harder because I think that this honestly actually comes from a generally good disposition. We want to please God. That's great. If you have that disposition in your life, you're unlike 98% of the rest of this city. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. But here's the thing. It can subtly creep in, and when it does, we've actually left the commandment of God. This is what Jesus says in verse 8. His ultimate assessment of the situation of the scribes and Pharisees is, you leave the commandment of God, and you hold on to the tradition of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold on to the tradition of men. This is tragic. This is tragic. The commandment of God that Jesus is talking about here is that commandment in the Old Testament which is overarching all of the Old Testament. To love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Jesus says, in trying to codify it out and creating a system where you can just check the boxes and, and get it done without actually bringing yourself, in, yourself and your heart into the relationship, you actually have left God. You're no longer in relationship with him because relationship means bringing your heart into the conversation. So when these codes become an end, we actually short, end up short-circuiting our dependency on God. We short-circuit our dependency on God, the fact that there's no way we could ever measure up. We short-circuit this dependency we end up losing our relationship with God. And so when we have this attitude of codifying, all of a sudden the life from God can no longer come down into our lives because we're not bringing ourselves into the relationship. Our heart isn't there anymore. We've just, we're just pretending. And so we become disconnected from the life that God actually wants to pour into our life, the, the, the life that comes from actually bringing our heart into a conversation. <clears throat> And so this is a, a huge call for us, a huge call for us when we examine all of the things that we do, all of maybe the codes that we've created, and we need to start asking questions. We need to start asking relational questions. These are sticky questions. These are qualitative questions. These are sometimes feels unmeasurable questions that, that we need to ask. Because if, if we make the codes the end in and of themselves, then all of a sudden we've duped ourselves into thinking uh, that we don't need to show up in our relationship with God. And questions like this can help us show up again. 
How have I experienced God this week? Um, What areas of my heart is God talking about with me this week? Um, How is my relationship with God? And, And view it through the lens of what a relationship actually is. There's, there's all these relational questions we can start asking that all of a sudden get at, at, the, at, the, at the notion that we need to bring our heart to God, okay? So that's the first attitude, and, and Jesus takes a little example here. He shows us an example of kind of what comes out uh, when, we, when people start doing this because um, there's some, some byproducts of this attitude in the world. Pick it up in verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of, the, of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Um, Corbin in Jesus' day was a lot like declaring bankruptcy. You could just declare Corbin, and all of a sudden, all of the things that you had were removed from public use and only permissible for you to use because you had, in some strange religious sense, dedicated all of them to God. It was very ambiguous. Um, it's a lot like what happens in my household um, every day. Um, I have a four-year-old, and she waits for her two-year-old sister um, to put down her most special toys, and then she grabs them, and she takes them up into her bunk bed, and she puts them in her purse. She declares them Corbin, only intended for her use. And the joke's kind of on her, because then Penny will wait for Lucy to fall asleep and then crawl up there and on top of her, open her purse and start playing with all these items right on top of her. It's, it's hilarious. It's like, it's, it's the ultimate form of just being punked by your little sister, you know? Um, but Lucy has declared these things Corbin. How is this happening? It's like very clearly selfish, right? But when someone declared something Corbin, no one else could, do it, could use it except for them. For, and ideally, it was essentially for God's purposes. It was very spiritualized. Um, and, and they would do this because um, in the Jewish culture, parents kind of had say over your things as well. Um, like if you started making a lot of money and doing pretty well, your parents would be like, great, let's like buy a new car for the house, a new TV, you know? Um, that's a joke, guys. It's a joke. <laughs> um, but um, what actually, uh, and so what you would declare Corbin, they couldn't do that anymore. And when you would die, all of your wealth, all the things that you declared Corbin, they'd get passed over to the temple because they were declared for the use of God alone. And so um, the scribes instituted this, and the Pharisees did, and that's called a conflict of interest. That's called a conflict of interest because they're in it for the long game. They're, they selfishly want your things, and so they say, well, you can, don't have to share it with any of your family as you, as you live, but we get it at the end. And so their selfishness caused them to create a command that allowed the selfishness of the people to fester and grow. And, and Jesus looks at that and says, hey, you guys are violating the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, which is honor your father and mother. You guys are a walking contradiction. When we start to have these codes in our lives, we become walking contradictions. 
our codes can actually start to fight what God is actually hoping to accomplish. Um, Christy and I, we actually went to Turkey a little over a year ago uh, to see a missionary uh, couple and what, what they were up to in the capital city of Ankara. And this couple loved to pray. They loved to pray. Like we, we woke up in the morning and they'd have like our, our schedule printed out and we're gonna go here and we're gonna pray. We're gonna pray walk here. We're gonna have a little worship session here, which is great. You know, prayer often precipitates the mission of God. Um, but it happened at several points in our stay there that people would try to break in at those points in time when we were praying and want to talk to us about what we were up to, Turkish people, and they were irritated by their presence. <laughs> they were irritated by it, and that was the reason why they were there. And so when we actually start to lean on these codes, we actually become very ineffective to the mission of God in general. Because if you think about it like this, the, the primary mission that we're focused on is helping other people see or discover what a relationship with God actually means. And if you're actually not bringing yourself into that relationship with God, if you're actually only leaning on a set of codes um, to relate with God, then that's all that you can give somebody else. That's it. And so the life can't really flow, of God can't flow to you, to other people, all right? All right. Okay, so, so that's Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees and scribes, and, and he's just destroyed them, right? He's just put them, I mean, he's just, uh, he's just completely refuted what their notion of, of how the law of God works. And so he uses that as an opportunity to turn to the crowds. And he says this in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So he turns to the crowd and he says, Hey guys, all these laws that, the, that these people are teaching that talk about your defilement from coming in from the outside, those are negated. And we celebrate. We say, yay, no more oppressive religion, right? That's what we do. But there's something else that's actually happening here as well because the Old Testament Torah has a lot of laws about it, uh, laws within it that are actually all about keeping oneself from being defiled from things outside. And, and these laws um, were lengthy in number. Here's just a few of them. If you came into contact in any way with carcasses, that is like an animal who had died without being slaughtered, um, by contact with fluids from someone's body, your, your own or someone else's, by contact with anyone previously declared unclean, sexual intercourse defiled people for a day, by contact with blood after giving childbirth, by contact with any item declared unclean, by contact with the dead. Um, that's not like spiritual medium talking with the dead, that's like touching a dead person. Um, by contact with someone who had contact with the dead, by contact with lizards and other unclean. There's all of this huge list in the Torah that Jesus is actually annulling at this point. And he goes even further. Look at it here in verse 17. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, so, so Mark gives us the instance of when Jesus is actually um, talking with his disciples right after this, because they, they don't get it either. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach? and is expelled. And then Matthew gives us this, this little parenthetical statement, which is really important in case we're missing it. Thus he declared all foods clean. And this was another huge broad, broad swath of Old Testament scripture and, and Pentateuch Torah law 
that is in the Bible about these food laws, and Jesus seems to annul those as well. In the sermon series, the sermon series we're calling it the, the most important question ever asked. And, and that's because as people come into contact with Jesus in the book of Mark, they're all forced uh, to ask this question of, who is Jesus? And then Jesus actually formulates this question and asks it of his disciple more formally. And he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Mark chapter seven gives us another way that we can answer that question. Who do you say that I am? Jesus is the word of God that has broken into history. He's refuting misunderstandings about himself and the word of God. That's what he just did with the, with the uh, scribes and Pharisees. He's refuting misunderstandings and misconceptions about the word. He's contemporizing the word, and then he's pointing back to what faithful observance of the word looks like. That's what he's doing here, and that's how we really need to understand these, uh, these laws that are being dismissed, because um, a thousand years earlier, when Israel had just come out of Egypt, they're surrounded by a bunch of other nations that had their own ritual practices, their own food laws, their own laws about defilement that were done in order to please their gods. And so God gives Israel their own set that allows them to be faithful to him. And if the, we see that the way that they're structured, you can really see this when you get into it, it critiques the way that all these other nations are actually thinking about how this stuff works itself. And so it's incredibly missional and people come into Israel because there's a lot of life in the way that they practice their cultic rituals. Um, but, but what Jesus is saying is he's contemporizing this word that he spoke himself as the second person of the Trinity back a thousand years earlier, okay? And so we, we celebrate, we, we see Jesus coming on the scene and, and he says, no more oral tradition. Yay, no more oppressive, no more oppressive religion, right? And then Jesus takes large swaths of the Old Testament and he says, yeah, you don't have to worry about that anymore either. And we celebrate, yay, no more oppressive religion. That's just what we naturally do here in Seattle. Because Jesus is coming in and he's correcting misunderstandings of the word. But then he does this. He continues talking with his disciples in verse 20. And all of a sudden we realize that, that he has, he's really done a number on us. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So I want to focus on that, that last thing that I said. Uh, who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus is the person that came to clarify what he had already revealed to humanity. An intense obsession of the heart of man. An intense obsession of the heart of man. So all these 13 things come, spring from our hearts. Spring from our hearts. And in doing this, Jesus isn't showing up on the scene and he's, creating, he's not creating new categories. He's not. In fact, the Old Testament, we, we unpacked the, the greatest commandment of the Old Testament earlier. You shall love the Lord your God. That's a heart statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the umbrellas of the entire Old Testament that everything falls under, actually. So Jesus isn't showing up on, on the scene and creating new categories for people. He's not doing that at all. 
He's actually pointing back to old categories because in the Old Testament, we see people who are looking to God for their righteousness based on their faith and wrestling with their hearts, intensely wrestling with their hearts. And we see it uh, right here. Here's an example of it by the king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel, um, David in Psalm 51. This is right after David had um, slept with another man's wife and then uh, conspired to have him killed um, so he could take his wife. He says, purge me with hyssop, that's like a, a type of soap back then, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy, that's a relational term, of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. This is what I want to, this is where it gets really pointed. For you will not delight in sacrifice of the law, or I would give it, because his heart was, was bad at this point, right? Because he had walked away from God. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So Jesus shows up on the scene and he's actually pointing back to themes that are very present within the entire Old Testament. In fact, you could say that it's, it's, the heart is the primary um, source of all moral and spiritual conduct in the Old Testament. That the Old Testament, it actually talks about the heart more often and more robustly than any other ancient text that we've ever come across. Like its, its central focus is the heart of God and the heart of man. That's the Old Testament's central focus. The unfortunate thing is that just by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, Israel had lost this emphasis altogether. And this is largely due to the scribes and the Pharisees' teaching of the oral tradition, okay? So, so we celebrate that Jesus has come back and he's pointing us back to, to correct understanding that it's all about our hearts, <clears throat> that he's gotten rid of this oppressive religion that's happening. But then he says this, and it's clear um, that this kind of unearths another category within us, that unearths a, an, a, another attitude that we have. And this other attitude seems opposite to the previous attitude that we talked about. Um, this other attitude is it, um, it says that true religion doesn't have a code at all. And, and this is the, the primary um, attitude towards religion here in the city of Seattle, that true religion doesn't have any codes. It doesn't have anything that you need to follow. Um, even if you're, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian, and you're receiving grace for the things, that, the ways that your heart is twisted and, and tormented and, and sinning, and, and you don't need to worry about your sin. <clears throat> but in reality, this motivation or this attitude stems from the same motivation that the other attitude did. Uh, they only seem like they're opposite attitudes, the one where we codify and the one where we just apply this, this broad grace to everything and not worry about our sin. They're both driven by a primary motivation to not be accountable before God for what's actually going on inside of our hearts. And that's what we have to address. 
Both are trying to lower the accountability of our hearts before God. Certain people don't fall into one of them. Certain people don't fall into other of them. We actually do both. We can actually do both. With the things that we're really good at, where we know our heart's really good, we can codify it, and so we can check those boxes off and say, yep, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, didn't do that, perfect, I'm, I'm good over here. On the other parts that we really struggle with, we say, oh, Jesus has got that with his grace. And it's these attitudes, and we start to embrace them, we start to realize that we've removed ourselves from sharing our heart with God. We've used grace as, as an excuse not to actually deal with our stuff. We've used codes as an excuse that look like like, like we're doing a really good job as an excuse not to really deal with our stuff with God. But at the end of this, Jesus gives us a statement with 13 things that includes actions and attitudes. And at the end of it, all of us feel this. I'm sure that some of you have felt this just sitting here. Um, well, if that's true, who can be pure before God? If this is true, if that's what makes someone defiled, who can be pure? Because if, if, if you're honest and listening and, and reading this, a couple of those probably pops out at you and you're like, yep, I can act deceitfully sometimes. Who can be pure? It's the same feeling that Jesus, I mean, that God wanted Israel to feel when they, when they read the law. Who can be pure? And, and so we're not a lot different from the Old Testament people in that way that we all encounter what God's demands on the heart actually are, and our conclusion is, well, shoot, (laughs) I can't live up to that. But we, living 2,000 years after the death of Christ, have several things that we can point at that ensure us that this purity and and this lack of defilement will one day be extended to his people, and and we get to experience it now. We get to look back at the cross and how Jesus going up on the cross took care of sin once and for all. And on the cross, he proclaimed victory over sin and it was eventually a a stamp of approval of God was put on it when he raised him from the dead. We look back at the cross and we say, we don't need a code. Jesus has taken care of our sin, but look how much it cost. That grace was really costly. I need to bring my heart to God to talk about that. And then when uh, seven weeks later, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit on his people. He sent the Holy Spirit on, on the disciples and he said this Holy Spirit would be a comforter that would convict the world of sin. A comforter that would convict the world of sin. And so we have this Holy Spirit in our lives that's continually challenging us and encouraging us and comforting us and empowering us to bring our hearts to God so that we can live a changed life of of God in this world. And then he gave us his church. He instituted his church where all of us are doing this inside of our hearts and then uh, we get to have relationships where we get to process that uh, that out loud, talk to them about how, how we've been challenged, how we've been encouraged by God, the life of God that we're being experienced ask other people how they're doing in that, and walk together hand in hand in this life into the world to bring this life to the city of Seattle. That primarily happens through our groups. Okay, and so, so we have all of these, these three things, these three things, the cross, the spirit, and the church that empower us to bring our hearts to God in a way that we can experience the life of God again. We are always on guard against the codes. Do we reject codes altogether? Absolutely not. 
We just try to engage them with our hearts, relationally with God. Do we reject grace altogether? Absolutely not. We just see how much it costs for God to come to this earth and bear the penalty of sin. And, and we mourn when we have to, when, when we see ourselves as being responsible for that. All right? So if you, if you leave with one thing today, it's to seek the life of God. To move past these attitudes and bring your heart to God and be a, a real relational person with him each and every day. And if you need help figuring that out, you can talk to Dave or myself, or really uh, a lot of people here have that figured out too. We'll have uh, people praying uh, that could pray with you um, over here um, at the end of the service too. And so um, if you need help figuring out, uh, that, that's why we exist as a community, to consider these questions together. All right, will you pray with me?